Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. Mental illness really is one of the great equalizers. It does not discriminate based on race or gender or socioeconomic class. And while access to treatment certainly is affected by these things, equal protections for people with mental illnesses in the workplace and elsewhere are very lacking. My guest, Royce White, was a standout basketball player at Iowa State, where he was the Big 12 Newcomer of the Year for the 2011-2012 season. He played professional basketball in the NBA and the Canadian NBL, where he was two-time All-Canada NBL First Team selection and the 2018 NBL Scoring Champion. Royce's struggle with anxiety was very public and damaging to his NBA career. He became a leading advocate for mental health parity, not only in professional sports, but for everyone. I hope you'll listen to his story and see the people in your life, in your workplace, who are struggling with mental illness and make room for them. It's so important. My name is Royce White. I deal with generalized anxiety disorder and mental health is the greatest social issue we face. Sorry, not sorry. Stole the ball, and here he comes again. Ball set up by great defense. Royce to the chin. Send it in with that motor. And there's Kajugan kicking it to White. Backhand and pass to Johnson for three. Yes, sir! Royce White, what a play. He just threw that pass behind his head to Kadugan and Kadugan able to do that pass justice by connecting on the three. Should point out, Royce White did get that assist, so that's actually going to give him the triple-double. Royce White grabs it, rips it, runs it, and distributes it beautifully. High speed. Royce White. The White with a double-double, 11 points and 10 rebounds. Royce White just pushes Curtis. 2.18 to go here in this fourth quarter. Look at Royce White go to work. It's just Buffalo. I mean, that's just power, quickness. He has the total package of a guy that can, you know, just get his shot anytime. It appeared rookie Royce White of the Rockets would report to the Development League at the behest of his team, but then a day later said no, he would not. Regarding his anxiety issues that have kept him out all year, White had this statement. I've chosen to not play because the doctors and I believe it is unsafe for unqualified Rockets front office personnel to make medical decisions as they are not mental health professionals. So the idea... The idea that you're not with the team and you're sitting at home. The idea that you may never be with the team. The the whole dream may go down the drain before it even takes hold. That's that's working on you. Yeah, right now. Having trouble sleeping at night. Yeah. Having trouble eating. Migraines. And 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 another you know another thing that that America is going to have to. you know, come to grips with is that stress is one of the number one killers of human beings. I think it's good for me to give background context anytime I explain my story or tell my story at this point, because, you know, the devil's in the details and the nuance matters. So six years worth of a story and being at battle with the NBA about mental health policy is, is too much for one hour, but I'll try my best to give you the condensed version. So When I was playing my college basketball at Iowa State University, I had spoken publicly towards the end of the season about having uh, anxiety disorder and mental health in general, how I viewed the topic. 
my anxiety disorder specifically around, you know, flying, fear of heights, OCD, uh, generalized anxiety. I had been dealing with it for most of my life and was formally diagnosed at 16. I played an entire season with anxiety at Iowa State and was an All-American. And at the end of that season, uh, declared for the NBA draft, I got drafted. So that was really cool. And upon my arrival in the NBA, there were some preliminary discussions about how we would approach my anxiety uh, disorder in terms of uh, operationally, and you know, travel, day to day, communication, uh, all the things that you would put into place going into that type of a, a new relationship with uh, with a team uh, for athletes, and so. Through some of the attitudes and the perspectives that were given in those discussions, there were alarms set off that we needed to take a, a closer look at what the actual policies were in the NBA regarding mental health. And sure enough, when we went to go look at our collective bargaining agreement and the uniform player contracts, there wasn't any mental health policy in there. And not only was there not any formal policy, but there wasn't even a whole paragraph specifically related to mental health. So that was a problem obviously. And so myself and the medical professionals that were involved at the time, team doctors, my family doctors, uh, the doctors from the university I had just come from, and a, a whole host of other medical professionals involved in the situation recommended that we rectify that situation. And the first stop in my mind was to create some language or a document that just created parity between mental health and physical health. And the reason why I thought to do that was there was already some precedence for uh, such a policy uh, here in the federal legislation. Actually, Senator Wellstone, who's from my hometown or my home state of Minnesota, had passed what is now the, the Paul Wellstone Act that created mental health parity and physical uh, health parity for insurers. So there was already some precedence there for that that I was aware of from, you know, having been an advocate and having been somebody who dealt with anxiety and dealt with getting medication and, and how, you know, you needed to go about doing that with insurance. And so uh, the NBA didn't want to do that. They were vehemently opposed to doing that, as a matter of fact. And their reasoning was that players would be able to just fake mental illnesses. You know, it's interesting when you have a injury, so to speak, and you have a, you know, a knee injury or my hand or, you know, it's an ankle sprain. It's a lot different when you can't see it. And somebody doesn't know what's going on outside the lines. Everybody's going through something. Success is not immune to depression. We continue to try and negotiate some type of movement on the policy because, like I said, the medical professionals involved recommended it. So the next thing we suggested was just that we create a policy. And, you know, they scoffed at that, you know. And so in response, a lot of general managers, a lot of coaches, a lot of other players, team owners, and uh, the sports media, they all scoffed at that idea. And, you know, here we are five, six years later, and there's been recent stories not only in the sports world, but specifically in the sports world about, uh, you know, more and more people sharing their struggles with mental health. And, you know, you and I were on probably the front end of that wave. And, you know, six years later, with, with all the inertia going that way, the NBA has just tacitly uh, affirmed that position without any reconciliation that they were uh, so opposed to it, you know, five short years ago. And I think ultimately, you know, my message was was simple. It was that mental health is, number one, the biggest social issue we face, which is what I said then. It also is in need of priority and, and ultimately policy. And even more so than those three obvious points, my message was that the psychology of human beings, the human mind is where we should be focusing our energy and time. And it's not going to be an easy solution. There may never be a solution because it's that complex, but that is probably the, the best reason why our focus needs to be there. And if we're not even having that conversation or, or even worse, gerrymandering that conversation when it comes about, uh, then we're in a very, very bad spot. And I mean, all in all, that's pretty much the condensed version of, of, of what's, what's happened with me over the last five years. And, you know, you've been right there. So this story just pains me. Because it speaks to so many issues. 
It speaks to the stigma that is around mental illness. It speaks to the discrimination around disability. It speaks to taking away someone's livelihood because they don't understand how to deal with it. And I think it's important for people to understand a little bit about anxiety. And, uh, you know, a part of the reason why I wanted to speak to you is we connected because I also have generalized anxiety disorder and have had obsessive compulsive disorder. And I really understand how debilitating it is. And I feel as though it is obviously something people don't talk about. But for me to not talk about it, I always felt like I was hiding something, especially right. from because in my industry, what happens is, is you go in for a physical, much like your business, before you start a production. And they ask you if you're on any medications. They ask you if you've ever not been insured before. They ask you if you've ever not been able to work for any reason. And I felt like before I went public with my diagnosis that I had this deep, dark secret that I was never really being honest about. And what happened with me is is after Milo was born, my first son, my anxiety got so bad that I couldn't I couldn't go to work. I couldn't right. get up in the in the morning. Right. And and I was shooting a show called Mistresses at the time and I missed two weeks of work because I was not able to get out of bed and function. And I kept that, and production kept that a secret for me for a long time. And I was always so afraid that someone was going to find out. And I had written over and over about this topic for, for, for years, but I'd never done anything to release, like, an op-ed or anything, you know, which is ironic because I write op-eds for everything. It's like, oh, I had coffee this morning. I'm going to write an op-ed about it. But I never, I never, I was like, you know what? I'm going to write this and it's just going to sit there, but at least it will be prepared for when I'm strong enough to, to release it. And then finally, I feel like, and I think part of you coming forward with your story, having people around me coming to me for advice, I felt like, okay, the time is, the time is right. And I released an op-ed for Time Magazine about my anxiety. And I have to tell you, I felt like the weight of the fucking world was lifted off my shoulders because I was able to to be honest about myself. And and as soon as I was able to put that into the universe, my truth, my my reality with mental illness, it almost destigmatized it for me. Which then allowed me to speak about it because I was holding yeah, my see, own stigma. What, what's interesting about that, I think this was more of the intuition that I had at 21 coming into this league that has, you know, is a, is a global brand that has reached as far as you possibly could imagine. I mean, everybody from ages 70 down to age seven are fans of basketball, are fans of those players, are fans of you know, the, the culture that stems from such a big uh, company, especially a sports company of that magnitude and uh, the personalities that are involved, like I said. And so what stuck out to me was that it was obvious to me that being open and honest about mental health struggles is the first step, uh, the first e- efficient step in treatment and, and actually healing and actually not only healing internally, but then also trying to find support from others, which is what you ultimately need at some point. I mean, none of right. us are going to be able to face those challenges alone. And and so the approach that the league took and the approach that the sports world has taken, and I think is a, a microcosm of the larger society, is that if we weed these people out or if they get over it or if we establish a, a culture or a system where we – de-incentivize those people from putting their burdens on us and us having to acclimate to their burdens, then we will somehow usurp any of the high maintenance, you know, that they bring. And and what I told the NBA in, in our meetings behind closed doors is, listen, you can try and push me out or make it seem like I'm asking for special treatment. But what you're doing ultimately is you're you're telling the people that come after me, 
that have these issues that it's not safe for them to speak about these issues. Right. And, and while you may be convincing yourself that you will then weed them out, the false premise there is that more people have these issues than you ever could realize. So actually what you're doing is you're singling out the people who are on the best track to actually recovering because the people who are willing to step out, step outside of the stigma, mm. face the stigma, face the judgment are the ones who are further along the road of actually overcoming those issues. I suffer from depression. Depression is with me on a daily basis. It is time for sport to accept its responsibility with this issue. There's records, there's numbers that I'm really close to, and of course I feel pressure, but I will play, I will fight, and I will keep going on. My thoughts of wanting to, to take my life, they don't define me, and, and they will never define me, and they'll never win. Struggles are gonna happen in life. You know, you're gonna get punched in the mouth at some point, but understand that you can get back up, dust yourself off, and and get back out there. And everybody's going through something, and everybody, uh, you know, has things that you can't see, you can't touch, that um, you know they're walking around with every day. If your eyes hurt and you go to the opticians, if your head's hurt and you go and see someone about mental health, it'd be nice to just let it out rather than keeping it in. Because the more you keep it in, the more you explode. I don't know why I opened up and talked about it, but I, I guess I was just sick and tired of just having it inside of me for 20 plus years, and and I was ready to make a change. I'm glad I got through it. The people who are going to be scared to do that, who are the ones who are going to stay quiet from watching a Royce get, get blackballed, those are going to be the ones who are going to then even revert into a further silence and they'll never come forward with those issues and they'll That's deal right. with them, you know, in the dark by exactly what we see an epidemic of, whether it's uh, drugs, alcohol, uh, sex, um, you name it. And so the, the, the starting premise needed to be that, okay, let's just assume that all these players are dealing with some form of mental health issues, which they are. People don't typically associate professional athletes with mental illness. They're hailed as modern-day gladiators for their supreme talent, praised by millions, and perceived to be unbreakable. But athletes are not immune to suffering just because they're in elite physical shape and sign autographs for children. In fact, one study found that athletes may be at increased risk due to factors such as injuries, competitive failure, and overtraining that lead to psychological distress. And an NCAA survey of student-athletes found that over the course of a year, 30% reported feeling depressed, while half said that they experienced high levels of anxiety. But many athletes find themselves in a machoism world that condemns anything less than being mentally tough. It's why so many of these athletes describe their pain as the invisible illness. If you can't see something, how do you understand it or empathize? All people are dealing with some form of mental health issues. And, and I don't mean to trivialize the different points or locales, a spectrum where people lay with their issues, right? Obviously, there's a huge difference between general anxiety, depression, OCD, PTSD, paranoid schizophrenia, you know, right. uh, hallucinations and panic attacks. These are all different things. But at bottom, what we're talking about is the mental health conversation and topic. It's another way to say the human condition. And, and so all of us have to face that. And at some point, all of us will face it and all of us will have trouble with it. So you can't, you can't weed anybody out. I mean, that's just not an efficient process. What were they saying to you to your face during this time? Oh, they were just being condescending. They were like, who is this 21-year-old kid? Well, really, it was the, the NBA and their upper, their higher-ups allowed the media to intermediate between us because, you know, the, I'd say something in an interview and then they'd say something and then we'd meet face-to-face, right. -face, we'd go our separate ways and then the media would comment and then we'd meet again. So they were kind of letting the media play an intermediary. And basically what the media had said was that, who does this 21-year-old kid think he is? He's wanting special treatment. He's a diva. He thinks that his anxiety issues should be this top priority and that all these other players are dealing with them and there's no evidence of that. And I'm just sitting here like, guys, you guys are so off the mark and, it, and it's so scary how arrogant you are about being off the mark. I'm talking about the media now. And then to go into the rooms where we're having the discussions with the NBA, like David Stern, for example, or the general manager for my team, and them actually exhibit the same type of arrogance. I was just like, 
you know, this is way bigger than the NBA and, and me. And this is way bigger than my team and me. This is way bigger than my career. This is about corporate entities, institutions or institutions in general, thinking that they could group think or group talk themselves away from science and facts and really human welfare. And that's basically the stance that they took is, hey, listen, we collectively bargained to not have to deal with anything that's not in the collective bargaining agreement. And since mental health isn't in there, we don't have to treat it as a valid field of science. Is it still not in there? So we went through five years of me, you know, screaming from the mountaintop, the soapbox, so to speak, you know, playing the quote unquote martyr. And at the end of it, two years ago, I reached out to the union and they had gone into their collective bargaining negotiations or, or preparations because it was the, the current was going to expire and they were going to have to agree to a new one. So I said, then I said, listen, don't let mental health be the last thing you guys address or else it won't get addressed properly or fully. And they said, no, no, we got these different committees working on it and we're trying to do it, yada, yada. Uh, this was the union. And so long story short, the only thing that, that got added into the collective bargaining agreement was uh, a statement that there will be a program in the future. Now, when I was talking about mental health, they were kind of going by the collective bargaining agreement to a T, and that's what they were using to not have to do things that they're now doing, like implementing an independent body with a mental health director who is going to be neutral or private if necessary. Now they're just doing those things. And uh, Adam Silver, who's the new commissioner, is you know standing up on the podium and, and treating those ideas as if they were his own. So my point is this, and this, and this was another deeper intuition that I had about how this situation was a, a microcosm for what we're facing in the greater society is that when you do something only because you're being pressured to do it, I doubt the efficiency of it. I doubt the weight that it'll carry. I doubt that it doesn't fall flat. When you do something because you have a genuine understanding, a genuine care, we have a much better chance of it, of it being effective. And what do you say to people that say, well, we have to start somewhere? I'm probably the biggest proponent of some of the sentiments of a, of a guy like the late Stephen Hawking when he goes, you know, we don't know how much time we have to get these things right. Yeah. And it, it's always been the MO of human beings, especially in modern societies, to do things reactively. And, and part of that is just the way humans learn is we learn something, we do it wrong, and then we learn how to do it right. But part of that is manipulation. And anybody who's not going to admit that is, is a part of that manipulation. You know, it's, it's yes, there are things that we just learn honestly from making honest mistakes and go, oh, OK, you know, we should do it this way. But there are those instances when people are intentionally gerrymandering or intentionally trying to manipulate a situation so that they don't have to be accountable in the ways that they should be. And not even that they would be difficult to be like. Why was it ever a big deal that I said mental health should be in our collective bargaining agreement? You look back on that now, and it seems prophetic, but it was just one of the most one, two, three ideas that somebody could have brought forward, <laughs> right? But, but, but that's happening across our society, so. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. have therapists on staff like they have like a you know a physical therapist do they have a mental therapist on staff uh no i mean i don't think it's common practice i think i think from the time that i got drafted onward it was the advent of of people starting to explore that option i think sports psychologists had been a part of what teams were looking to do but there's a huge difference between sports psychology and then and then methodologically breaking down 
mental health from a proactive standpoint, treatment if need be, uh, and and even more so, not reacting to what an individual may be facing and then manifesting as an individual person. But what do we know about mental health and how do we create environments that actually acknowledge what we know? You guys are under the impression that mental health is going to, by default, reduce production of an individual. Right. I've played against the best, and, and presumably the number one pick is Anthony Davis, and you know, shortly after Michael K. Gilchrist. And these are guys that I've outperformed time and time again. But unfortunately, because of my mental illness, I'll probably slip out of that range that those guys are in. If Mikhail can pull this off, Houston's a question mark at 18. The rest of the room is against you, okay? The what? And Mikhail's... The rest of the room, other than Mikhail, it says you're too risky, uh, okay? Yeah. Orlando, Orlando's out. Okay. Denver's out. Boston's out. They're out? Okay, that brings us to 23. Okay. Indiana's, Indiana's out. Miami's out. Oklahoma City's out. Again, I went through an entire season where played at Iowa State with an anxiety disorder where I ended up being one of the only players in history to lead my team in all five stat categories. We rant and rave about Royce White. It's, uh, it's a smorgasbord of basketball plays. He scores, he leads the team scoring, rebounding, assists, blocks, and steals. So all categories. He can shoot it, he can pass it, he's physical. You better be paying attention if Royce White's got the ball out top. And I think if you look at my life with all the things that I do, it definitely has not hurt my productivity. So that's that's a bunch of bullshit. I mean, you could make the argument that, hey, you know, if Alyssa didn't have anxiety, then maybe she had she would have been able to do this. this. But the point is that comparatively to the rest of your peers or to the rest of society, you've accomplished major, major things. By the way, who knows if I didn't have anxiety, if I could still do everything that I do do. Absolutely. That's the bigger that's the bigger point. Part of the gift of being in in my body is that I am able to multitask and think completely to many issues at once while also, you know, raising my kids and 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 doing a yes. series and and I don't know if I would be that person if my brain chemistry and and the way in which I think and process things were any different. I know what gets me in it, and I get myself, I know how to get out of it through, mm -hmm. through three years of therapy. You figure a lot of things out. And I would want people to know that you can deal with depression and ADD, God knows. Um, but in studying both of them, I found out that a lot of geniuses <laughs> have these similar traits. As well as us. <laughs> What people are doing, though, and, and this is uh, one of the one of the biggest roadblocks for for the mental health topic to come into the space it needs to, is that people are very unaware of the different ways anxiety can manifest. So, for example, a way to attack a Royce would be to say, "Oh, you can't get on plane, so your anxiety is hindering you from being the NBA player that you could be." Which which is bullshit. Because how many people Bullshit. have you heard that are hugely successful people like um, DJ Khaled or Whoopi Goldberg or any of these people that are terrified to fly or were terrified to right. fly that would take buses from one coast to the other coast because they wouldn't get on a on a plane? Yeah, no problem. You just make the schedule around it. And and so even and one of the things that they did that makes that shows you the level of corruption. And, and when you say like, well, is it better to start? We have to start somewhere. Yes, but you can't start somewhere with a bunch of corrupt people. And that's that's part of the issue with any institution and in trying to create a change is you, you do have you can't weed out people who have anxiety or depression, but you can weed out people who are willingly corrupt. Now, when you say corrupt, though, that to me means like criminal behavior or stealing from the like describe what you mean by corrupt. I mean, corrupt in, in, in a corrupt motive, a corrupt process of, of dealing. I think of corruption more as in like human beings have the, the potentiality to always be corrupt in their everyday behaviors. But there are those of us that are exercising corruption at a, at a higher clip. 
you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I don't think of it as being explicitly criminal, but, you know, I understand what you're saying, but some of these people may be criminal, but that's a whole nother, (laughs) you know, that's a whole nother debate. But, you know, my my point is, here's what they tried to do. They, the NBA basically tried to say, well, you can't fly, you can't play in this league. And they let the media perpetuate that because all of the fans can hear in this vacuumous media consumption era is, well, how is he going to get to back-to-backs? All the, the, NBA, the NBA players, they fly to every game. How is he going to do it? He can't do it. But the reality is that what I actually asked for and what was supported by the medical professionals involved was allow me to bus to games when it's possible. So if we're going from Chicago to Minneapolis, which is a six-hour drive, it's totally reasonable that I would make that drive instead of take that flight. Now, if I have to fly from New York to L.A. on a back-to-back, then I have to fly and we'll deal with that. Have you been flying anywhere in the last couple of weeks when you're going to work out? Flew everywhere. Uh, I went to Indiana. I went to Miami. Flew here. Be flying to Cleveland on Monday. Flying back to Minnesota on Tuesday. Yeah, so. so is that is that overblown? Those concerns? Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say overblown. That's, that's probably not fair. Uh, they're valid concerns, but. I'm not too worried about having to fly come season time. You know, flying with your team and, and your coach staff and trainers is a lot different than flying by yourself commercial. So, The point that I think you touched on well is that you have been able to do great things with anxiety. I have been able to do great things with anxiety. If we take a score of people who have talked about these issues, we usually only know about these people and their issues because they've already done great things. And we can even go as far as to say people who have tragically ended up taking their own lives. I don't know two better musicians than, than Chris Cornell and, and Prince. And I say Prince, too, because the, the drug issue is obviously of the mental health spectrum as well. Yeah. So I don't know two better musicians than that, of, like of all time. So we're lying to ourselves if we try and create this pigeonhole where we say, let's put all the people who have mental health issues in there and then we can carry on with society uh, well, because without those people, we wouldn't even have the society we have. And the people who we don't find out about their issues, they're still having those issues. That's just the reality. I just think that there's so much that's misunderstood because people are not willing to talk about it because of the stigma that comes along with it. Like, I think that most people think that mental illness and anxiety disorder and the spectrum of mental illness is all in your brain, that there's no physical manifestation of it. And I mean, I don't know about you, but when I when I am in my fight or flight, my my place of of anxiety, of chronic anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, it's a physical pain. It's not a mental anguish. It's like my I'm nauseous. My heart rate is up. I feel sweaty. And there's no relief. You can't really eat. You know, what it does to my stomach is is I think the most uncomfortable part. That feeling. Right, the nausea. Yeah, the nausea, yeah. the the feeling like you can't contri- like you can't take care of things. There there's just a heightened everything the sound, the sound distortion. So my my thing is imagine a society and groups of people who are trying to stigmatize mental health and mental illness to say that these people are weak and you're facing a, a, an entire layer of extra burden a day and still you're able to be the success you are. Like to me, that's what made the accusations of like players faking it so abhorrent to me is like you're letting the stigma or your lack of awareness project a false stigma onto me to have to deal with when we both could just have a conversation honestly about what this topic is and what it means and we'll come to an understanding where both of us will clearly be more sympathetic to one another's just daily being. And I think that's the gem in the mental health conversation. Well, what about the threat of athletes faking injuries? Smart people were just would just go there automatically. But when you're corrupt, you go around that. So and this is what I said. I said, because the, the question was, well, well, how do we measure it? You know, uh, how do we measure mental health? I said, well, the first thing is you, you be humble enough to not think that you're going to be measuring anything because you went to school for sports management and not psychology. So that's probably right. the first step you should take. But but just in, in procedural standpoint, let's acknowledge the fact that when you have an athletic injury, 
there's always a verbal test. So let's say I roll my ankle, okay? And, uh, you know, anytime you roll an ankle, you tear the fibers. You add, There actually is a tear. You may have just not completely snapped the tendon where you need surgery or things right. like that or the muscle or whatever. So you got swelling, you got bruising, you got tenderness, you got loss of mobility. When you come back to competition, even after the swelling is gone, after the bruising is healed and you've allotted the time that they think is proper for you to heal based on previous injuries that other people have had, the final say is still you going to a court, let's say, or field, doing a lap, doing a sprint, doing a down and back, hopping on one leg, and the doctor says, how do you feel? And at that point, any player has the same potential to fake or malinger physical injury the same way they would mental health issues. Guys, this mental health one is is actually a, a place of, you could say, understanding. It's a place of, of common ground that's that's been laid before us. Let's just tap into it. Let's walk across that ground together. And the sympathy is laying right there for us to utilize and be able to, you know, ease some of the hostility. I think the same thing is true for for every social issue we face, whether it's women's rights, you know, LGBT rights, you know, religion, uh, politics, education, marriage, you go right down the line. The psychology, the human mind is the common ground. It is the common bottom. Have so. other athletes come to you with their own stories of mental illness? Yeah, countless. I mean, just, you know, countless people in general, different public figures of different fields. And, you know, it's always really special to me to have that happen. That's, that's probably one of the most fulfilling pieces of this whole journey was just to actually be affirmed and let into how prevalent this actually is. How, how happy are you that you were, you know, that you came out with this? Did you ever think about maybe that it would have been better to kind of keep it because people talk about it so much and it, it's, it's uh, had some effect on your draft stock, possibly? Yeah, I never worried about that. Um, I just, uh, I know that it's more important. Uh, there's more people that are affected uh, in, in a positive way by me talking about it than just the negative effect it has on me. And, uh, you know, it'd be very selfish for me to worry about the negative impact on myself being one person than millions and millions of people uh, worldwide. So. I really do believe in, in, in writing my piece that everybody is going through something. So knowing that it doesn't discriminate and knowing that I'm trying to change the stigma, not only for you know people in sports, but all over. And I remember talking to my agent and he said, are you sure you want to do this? Because a lot of people are going to talk about it. I said, Jeff, I don't know if anybody will, but you know, just understand I'm trying to help people. He goes, I get it. If you help one person, if you help one kid, it could be absolutely life-changing and groundbreaking for that kid. Well, you know, I think there's so many things hidden uh, by people today that uh, probably um, maybe they talked about a little bit more. And particularly if you have a platform, as I do sometimes, um, I think it can, I think it is therapeutic. I can't tell you how many letters I receive from people uh, thanking me for writing this book and talking about the same thing they experienced growing up. And talking about how they got through it and how I got through it. Why do you think there is so much shame and stigma around mental health and especially around men with mental health issues? Yeah. Well, I, th I think the issue is twofold. I I'd say, I'd say that we've done a poor job in media and in entertainment and in storytelling of depicting the human psyche accurately. Mm -hmm. So I think I think we've done a poor job of of actually being as detailed as we would have needed to be for there not to be a stigma there, like that kind of superficial stigma, like oh you're crazy, or you know oh, oh you're you know you're out of your mind or you're we nuts. We use that terminology all the time. You're crazy. You're out of your mind, and we say it as if it's an insult. Yeah, but here's the thing, though. the The problem with it is, and I think this is a bigger problem that we have linguistically. Um, as a totally society, agree. We, use it, we use it twofold. Yep. We use it twofold. We use it casually as a joke, and then we also use it as an insult, and then we also use it when we really want to de define somebody who may actually be having the yep. worst side of the spectrum. So when you use a word all three ways, you're obviously going to run into an off-rail situation and people trying to understand 
what is meant right, by right because there is no perfect language because everyone brings to language their own experiences their own hurt their own heartache their own baggage right and words well, matter i think that's the first issue but the the second part of it is that mental health is the actual nut you know nut and bolt of the foundation of of actually being human so it actually calls you to look in the mirror Right. And so there's just a mass problem with people wanting to look in the mirror. So the mental health topic brings you closest to having to do that. And so people go, oh, well, that's extreme. No, no, no. You're not getting it. The caffeine is a drug. The porn you watch is a drug. The TV you watch is a drug. Your iPhone's a drug. It, it's all based on a, a, a psychology of habit and, and us trying to cope. And people capitalize on our addiction to those to those drugs, right? Like the coffee industry. Oh, yeah, the, the, the whole capital market is based right. on it. <laughs> they say that one in five adults experience mental illness. I'm willing to bet it's way more than that. But because so few people are comfortable coming forward, I think we have this this number that is still, you know, pretty substantial. But I guarantee you it's more than one in five. That's, I think, the third and final issue of this whole mental health topic is that the field of mental health has been very... Uh, you could say humble. They've been too nice. They've been uh, modest and they're scientists, right? So, you know, part of it is that a lot of the clinical psychology from a, from a neurological standpoint, we haven't been able to verify yet to a exact pinpoint. I mean, the brain is the most complicated thing on the right. planet. I mean, it's the most complicated thing in existence. You, you're not going to find something more dynamic. We don't understand consciousness yet. We have no clue what's, what, what it's about. And the dynamic between it and, and the, the physical tissue of the brain and, and you know, um, chemical imbalance and all of these, these things are habits that we build even. So uh, I think the mental health field has been slow to really push on what they know to be true. And that's the fact that, you know, everybody is dealing with some form of mental illness. It's just a matter of how yours is is in relation to the circumstance you're in. You know, maybe your job doesn't push those buttons. Maybe your home life doesn't push yeah. those buttons. And that's great for you. But at mass, we're seeing that the anxiety rates, the reporting anxiety rates are going up. The depression rates are going up. Suicide's going up. Drug use is going up. Or, you know, maybe our instruments to, maybe our instruments to actually receive those reports are getting better too. But, you know, I'm, I'm venturing to guess that, that these things are getting worse or exacerbated. Just think about all the children that have some sort of tendency to have some kind of mental health issue, and then they're being put through active shooter drills or lockdown drills, and how that must cultivate any innate anxiety that they may already have. I mean, how if you're a kid right now, and you're like 13 years old, and you go to middle school, and you have to deal with these active shooters and, and friends being shot and seeing it in the news and being aware that people are walking into schools and killing children. I mean, tell me that would not, if I grew up, if I was 13 now, and I turned on the news and saw how many mass shootings. I don't think I'd leave the house, let alone go into a school. The active shooter piece. Well, first of all, there's an entire side of the political debate that doesn't want to acknowledge the fact that the school shooting thing is a totally new phenomenon. And exclusive you know, to this country. Yeah, exclusive to this country and exclusive to a certain demographic of people. Number, yep. That's even. And, 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 and ironically, the demographic of people that produced the male shooters is also seven tenths of the suicides in America, which is another piece that people don't want to talk about. I hear people talking about Chicago a lot and the young black males, which is clearly a thing and, and needs to be addressed, but it would also probably be the psychological where we would best be suited to address that issue as well. But seven tenths of the suicides in America are white right. males. So if we're going to talk about an inherent pattern uh, that, that is connected to race and black males being criminal, then white males being suicidal is something that we would also have good data for. And, and actually, the number of suicides, and, and specifically white male suicides, double the number of total homicides in this country per year. There's more white males committing suicide in America on a yearly basis than all the other demographics committing homicide combined. I also don't like the way that people will pin 
certain issues on mental illness, but then do nothing about mental illness health care. Like, for instance, the Republican Party always blaming, you know, and mind you, there is a component of mental illness that goes on with these mass shootings, but then taking funding away from health care and mental illness care. So it's something that I'm just so thankful that you're willing to stand up and talk about. And let me ask you this. What do you what do you think or how do you think parents and and coaches and teachers can change the way that they teach kids about mental health? Yeah, I think start early. I think the first thing would be to familiarize themselves with it, try and look inward and see you know, what places in their life they may be experiencing mental health issues, be able to identify that, be able to to come to, to terms with that, be able to start to navigate that from a place of understanding. And then, you know, like a great saying is that, you know, you learn best sometimes from teaching, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, when you teach yourself in this regard, when you teach yourself how to navigate the mental health or how to look at the mental health situation, it'll be a lot easier for you to teach a young person. I think storytelling is important in that too. I have a friend who who was going through a very, very, very hard divorce. And what I thought was so smart that she did was instead of like saying to her kids, we're going to go to therapy, she said, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're all dealing with a lot of emotions right now and we're going to go to a feelings doctor. And we're going to go to, you know, we go to a mm-hmm. tooth doctor, which is called the dentist, and we're going to go to a feelings doctor and talk about how we're all yeah, feeling right now. And I think if we're able to shape, you know, and find words that relate to our youth, but also teach them at a young age that, you know, this is part of life. Taking care of your brain should be as important as taking care of your heart. If you have something wrong with your heart, you take medication. We make these issues so much more complex than they need to be. And I think that lends itself to shame and stigma. To circle all the way back to what you explained earlier about the physical piece of it, you know, anybody who doesn't believe that anxiety is physical or that depression is physical, all you have to do is go to your local ER. I've gone to the ER on a panic attack. Uh, Panic attacks, it's like... uh... You have one, you're susceptible to another one. Your mind races and adrenaline starts to pump. And then that adrenaline is so powerful, it makes your heart beat fast. So then that sends it back to your mind. Now your mind's like, oh man, my heart is beating. You know, you panic on top of panic on top of panic. It feels like you're dying. just remember not quite feeling right. Uh, I remember we went through a few plays. There was a timeout. I got to the huddle, and that's when I just I felt something that I had never felt before. I, can, I couldn't catch my breath. You know, I felt like my mind was completely out, and Ty Lue had said something to me. I told him I'll be right back. I ran in the locker room. I was essentially searching for something that I couldn't find. I didn't know this feeling, and then I just basically... Uh, ran to our trainer's room, fell on the ground, collapsed, and you know my heart was jumping out of my chest, and I couldn't get air to my lungs, and you know essentially was was you know, trying to clear my throat, sticking my hand down my throat, trying to get myself Seriously. air. Yeah, so it was. Must a, have been terrifying. It was terrifying. I thought I was having a heart attack. I really felt like I was going to die in this moment. I get like I'm getting hot thinking about it. You know that the the panic attack is the closest simulation to a heart attack, and they actually have to do heart attack tests to rule out that you didn't have a heart attack because that's how similar they are. Yes, correct. So that tells you how physical it is. Imagine people were having having them three times a day. It's like having a heart attack. And And it puts great trauma on your heart. Do you know, in Canada, all of the ER doctors are actually trained in psychiatric issues. They're not in the United States. So there's a certain amount of knowledge that they have when you go to an emergency room in Canada about mental illness and how to treat it. Because, you know, if you go to an emergency room here with a panic attack, what do they do? They send you home. Or maybe or worse. Or they give you medication. They will intravenously give you a benzo. Xanax. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. putting the most uh, addictive drug on the face of the planet directly into your vein. Yeah, absolutely. Are you hopeful? You know, 
it's hard to say now at this point. When I first said it, you know, we all have that grandiose moment in our own mind when when we discover something. I went, I went to myself, I said, whoa, this is it. This is the answer. And I think it is the answer. I think the psychological domain is the, the answer for us if there is going to be an answer. Like, I'm talking about humanity in general, thousands of years out. Um, I don't care where we go. I always joke with my friends, like, it doesn't matter if, if Elon Musk finishes and we go live on Mars, still going to have mental right. health. <laughs> it's so true. So, you know, I, I think it is the answer, but there's so much inertia built up for us to have just sidestepped everything that's actually important and meaningful. And then we've constructed these huge, huge mechanisms on top of the sidestep. And, and so, you know, a, a, a proper question is like, what is needed to actually catch up? What, what is needed? Because if a 21-year-old saying, hey, you know, mental health is a priority and to have an entire media landscape scoff at that, you know, what chance do we really have? I, I mean, and you, you talked about the shooter piece, and, and I wanted to circle back to that because there's, there's a double-edged sword there. Yes, there's the trauma from kids having to deal with the reality that their shooters, and even more so, maybe the parents having to deal with the reality that their kid could not come home at night because of, you know, sending them to get an education. But my diagnosis would be that what about what kids are dealing with in terms of being completely normalized in the mode of killing I mean, these games, Fortnite and Call of Duty and, you know, I'm not one to go, oh, let's get rid of the video games. But if we're going to have the video games, then we can't have an inadequate mental health system. Those two can't exist in the same space. If we're going to give our kids Black Ops, if we're going to give our kids Fortnite, if we're going to give our kids YouTube where, you know, now all these different things are manifesting in that space – we have to super boost the mental health side. I mean, has of anyone done studies on what the, those games do to the brainwaves or chemicals in the brain? Those games were built by psychologists. Those games were created by psychologists. The movement itself, the reason why the first person shooter game only allows you to go left, right, up and down is because it's a form of hypnosis. Mm, wow. Yeah, so it's actually hypnotizing you. What do you say about, you know, the countries that have those games that people don't have access to guns so that there there are no mass shootings or more violence. What I don't want to put out there is that all shooters or everyone with a mental illness has that capacity because most people that have mental illness would never, the only person that they would think about hurting is themselves. And that's why cutting is so prevalent. No, that's, that's absolutely why cutting true. is so prevalent. And, and I mean, when I'm in that mode, that heightened mode of anxiety, I'm my worst enemy. I would never think about right. ever, ever. That's just not in my DNA. That is not in my makeup. And, and most people with mental illness, I would say, would never hurt anyone else. And so that's why it makes me so sick when the right uses that excuse for mental illness and then does nothing to actually help people with mental illness. And in fact, tries to harm them by making it a pre-existing condition. Yeah, no, I think we're drawn to the extremes of, of these conversations. And especially when it comes to death and violence, I think we're naturally just drawn to the extreme outlook or the visceral response to the conversation. But if we take a look at human behavior and existence and history, even the most violent people, you know, let, let's take the most violent people in history, you know, your, your Jeffrey Dahmers, right? They spent the majority of their time in their life not being violent. It's just that the small amount of time that they were violent had a disproportionate impact on the society around mm -hmm. them. And I think the same is true for suicide, actually, statistically, is that there are 25 times more suicide attempts than there are suicides. So I, I think it's important for us to you know, keep things in perspective also when we're having these conversations and for people to know information like that and have solid ground in the way that we talk about it because it's easy to just go, oh, well, you know, everybody who's, you know, doing this is this or everybody who's doing that is this. And, you know, the, the reality is, is that with the right set of circumstances, most of us have the capacity to do great harm. Most of us, almost all of us have the capacity to do great harm with the right set of circumstances. And uh, it's a tough question ahead what to do with people who actually live in that circumstance and who may actually be manifesting those types of extreme behaviors and how the rest of us can stay sympathetic when we are endangered by those people, you know, and that's a tough question. And it's why I said to the NBA, listen, here you have 300 players who are very constrained. They're in very constrained environments per se. 
if you're not willing to pilot the mental health initiative, we're doomed. Right. <laughs> we're doomed, you know, because there's, there's people out there that are living in their house in the middle of the woods and they don't even have contact with society. And now they have Twitter and all they're doing is building up a hate and resent for Alyssa Milano. And, you know, one day they, they muster up the courage or the, the despair or resent to go out and do something extreme. And we're all looking like, well, why did this happen? It's like, are you kidding yourself? We know exactly why it happened. So what advice do you have for, for people who are trying to cope with a mental illness in their everyday lives? Well, we live in an age of self-help. I think, not to be like Gary Vee-esque, but uh, we, we do live in the age of self-help. And I think as far as mental health information goes in the right places, they have very, very good information. Like, I remember the first time I started having panic attacks, like, uh, a few years back, I, I had started having them again. Uh, I had an incident with the police, and I was misidentified. They drew their guns on me, and, you know, I was having some some panic attacks from that residually. And uh, I found something on the internet, a, a YouTube video, a uh, calming, you know, mindfulness practice video, and it really, really helped me. I don't want people to just go like, oh, let me go to YouTube for my therapy, because there is there is something to expertise. And human interaction. Right, right. No doubt. Ab- well, absolutely. But I will say that we have to also look at the landscape. And, and I'm not willing to prescribe if all things were fair, because what I would prescribe then is that everybody should have a therapist. But we live in a system that couldn't sustain that. And, and we live in a broken healthcare system anyway. Right. So with that being said, there is a lot of help out there online that you could access and just become familiar with the topic. Just don't walk around not having engaged mental health until the first time you have a panic attack or a depression spell or a traumatic situation because it's going to make it way harder to navigate successfully. And what's next for you? What are you working on to help continue this fight? I wrote two books. So, you know, they're on Amazon. The first one was a letter that I wrote to the NBA and we turned it into a book. My my second one was a book that I let my friend write from my perspective because I thought he had an inspired take on the modern sports landscape. And I think The sports landscape is a great microcosm because it's the world's watering hole. Everybody comes there to to interact, to to satiate whatever their vices are and 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 talk and have fun or, you know, berate people. Whatever it is, it's all happening Mm -hmm. right there. So, you know, those first two books were were about that. I have a third one coming shortly. And obviously, Anxious Minds, you know, aims to to launch this year and, and start to really put content out there that would be helpful for that person who needs more of a self-help circumstance or mechanism. The Last Renaissance is obviously a media company I launched last year or, you know, in 2000, late 2017. And, you know, we want to have more of a philosophical conversation and let people re-engage with philosophy. I think we've done a, a very huge disservice to replace philosophy and and critical thinking for the young person with video games. Mm. Uh, I just think that's a big issue. Uh, you know, you, you're not reading, you know, and, and you're not critically thinking likely to go off rails and it often does. And if, you know, so we want to do those things, continue to push those things, continue to push a level of understanding or a level of revision in, in all of the things that I'm a part of business-wise and, and from an athletic standpoint, I was blackballed from the NBA for talking about this issue. So um, I'm not going to let people's lack of, of understanding or people's corruption keep me from competing. And uh, I've now transitioned to another passionate sport of mine, and it's mixed martial arts. And my goal is to be the UFC heavyweight champion or a.k.a. the baddest man on the planet. What's that going to do to your anxiety? Although maybe, I mean, talking about philosophy, maybe there is something almost primal about being able to to face and physically compete in in that way. I mean, I had a psychiatrist once tell me, you know, I, I would get these these weird, not really panic attacks, but weird, like, you know, that just the pangs where it could it could turn into an attack. And I it used to happen all the time after Soul Cycle. And, uh, you know, I had someone say to me, you know, getting your heart rate up that high and not having anything that you're really running away from, your body doesn't know any difference. So it thinks that maybe it's Absolutely, in danger. Yeah. He And he said to me, maybe you should try boxing. And I was like, huh. He's like, because that would give you, you know, that anxiety, that physical primal urge, you know, s- something real tangible to work through. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's interesting because, you know, the way I look at it from a philosophical standpoint is that, you know, this this sport is the purest form of competition that man can engage in, that man, woman can engage in. And anybody who steps into that octagon or any combat sport is is really is really laying it all on the line and they're putting a piece of their life in there and, and leaving it behind. But that aside, I think I think there's a lot of stigma around a lot of issues. Like a lot of people look at mixed martial artists and they go, you must be crazy. And no, no doubt a lot of mixed martial artists have a, have a certain type of psychological profile. But let's not forget that Eastern philosophy and martial arts were genesis together. And, and great philosophy came from martial arts. And, and a lot of martial arts is learning how to be disciplined and, and to practice restraint and to practice methodical approach and process. And, you know, jujitsu is a, is a science, you, you know, it's, it's all a chess match. And also to marry that on to, you know, my own story is, you know, people always ask me like, well, how could you play in front of 16,000 people in an arena if you have anxiety? It's like, that's not how anxiety works. No, it's not. People are able to be, people are able to be anxious about what they're anxious about, when they're anxious about it. You could be scared of spiders, but not scared of guns. You could be scared of you know, guns, but not, but not scared of bombs. You could be scared of dogs, but not scared of cats. It's just people are just different. I'm able to speak in front of the White House, in front of thousands of people and feel not an ounce of anxiety. But if I walk on a on a stage and I don't feel safe, like a set, I get right. panic attacks. So for me, that is yeah. a trigger. And, we, you know, I think part of being able to, I mean, I don't think we're ever healed from mental illness, but part of being able to function is to know those triggers and to be able to, you know, deal with it in the way that is less abusive to yourself. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, people, that that would be another prescription I'd have for people just in navigating mental health is be kind to yourself. You know, we have so much pressure or so much messaging for us to have to be the hero in our narrative I won't say the hero, the ultimate hero, let's say, like every fault that you have, you have to overcome. It's like, actually, that's probably true. But in due time, you know, give yourself some time. If you if you have a problem with doing a certain thing, you don't have to overcome it tomorrow and don't push yourself to overcome it so vigorously that you actually break yourself down because people do that. You know, and you see that that's I would say an underlying cause of a lot of people's depression is that. They see something wrong with the way that they are, and they want to change it so bad. And when they can't, they become discouraged, frustrated, and and feel hopeless. And and then it it actually leads to them being worse off than if they would have just left it alone. Like like for me, for example, hey, listen, I don't like to fly. I'm not gonna sit there and take a hundred flights, you know, to try and overcome it. I don't like heights. I don't like being thirty thousand feet in the air. I like my two feet on solid ground. And if I can avoid flying, I will. If I have to, I will. Right. And that seems like a reasonable approach, you know? 100%. So. Well, thank you so much for your courage and for being you. I think you're you're a very special human. I have a secret, and I'm not alone. I'm a mother, an actor, and an activist. And like over 40 million Americans, I live with a mental illness. My generalized anxiety disorder was most likely triggered by my postpartum depression, and my journey with mental illness began with my journey into motherhood. In 2011, two years after suffering a miscarriage, I learned that I was pregnant with my first son, Milo, and it was a dream. My miscarriage was heartbreaking, but this pregnancy was beautiful. I did not experience morning sickness. I went to prenatal yoga five times a week. I walked two miles a day, and I took naps in the afternoon. Following this idyllic image of motherhood, I wrote a strict birth plan. No induction of labor, no pain medication, and no C-section. I equated a natural birth to my value as a woman and as a mother, and I was determined not to stray from that course. But life does not always go according to plan. On August 31st, 2011, 10 days before my due date, I began to have complications. Despite my plan, the doctors had to try to induce labor. I was forced to take an epidural, and I eventually delivered my beautiful son after 18 hours of labor and three and a half hours of pushing via C-section. And then 
With my darling son in my hands, I was in excruciating pain, not only from my C-section, but also from my milk coming in. That first night after we returned from the hospital, I suffered my first anxiety attack. I felt like I had already disappointed my child. I felt like I failed as a mother since I was not able to give birth vaginally or nourish him with the breast milk that had not come in yet. My heart raced. My stomach seized up. I felt like I was dying. I recovered, but a few months later, Milo spiked a very high fever and had a febrile seizure in my arms, and my paralyzing anxiety reared its head again. No, 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 I thought to myself. This can't be happening again. I don't have time for this. This was still 2011, and I was supposed to start work on a television show the following week. I told myself that I needed to keep myself together. As we began filming, my anxiety worsened. I began to develop irrational and obsessive fears. Like many working moms, I was overwhelmed by guilt for leaving my son during work hours. And like many others who suffer from anxiety, my pain was not taken seriously. Every day, I would drive to work and think about all the ways that Milo could die in the hands of his caretakers. Every night, after working 16-hour days, after I was finally able to hold my child and put him to sleep, my day's anxiety would culminate into a debilitating anxiety attack. Finally, I hit a wall. One early morning, I went to the emergency room at 2 a.m., asked for a psychiatrist, and got help. I felt as though I had no choice. I asked to be committed. I stayed in a public psychiatric ward for three days. At last, I began to feel as if my pain was recognized. But it wasn't easy. One of my doctors dismissed my symptoms, and many of my colleagues, even female colleagues, still had trouble understanding that I was hurting at all. But through this process, I also found angels including my psychiatrist and my therapist. They convinced me that I had the bravery to face my illness, the value to seek help, and the strength to recover. And I'm continuing to do all three, and most likely I will for the rest of my life. See, here's the thing about mental illnesses. You don't always look sick, and the answers are not always clear or black and white. But we should not confront these challenges by placing more hurdles in front of Americans who desperately need the care. I was lucky enough to have the means and insurance to get the help and support I needed. What happens to those mothers who don't have the kind of support I received? Mental health is also not a threat that can only happen to someone else. One in six Americans face mental illness, and less than half of them receive any form of mental health services. Let's rededicate ourselves to talking about mental health. Let's demand that our lawmakers pass policies that open, not restrict, our access to mental health services. Let's remind each other that no one should have to face these challenges by themselves. And if you see me on the street, please come tell me that I'm not alone. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry.